Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Mordechai Ish Yemini. Mordechai Ish Yemini is a student of Hacham Yosef Faur, learned at Mir Yeshiva, Torah Or, and Merkaz before being ordained by the rabbinate. A father of four, he built and now lives on a peripheral farm in Gush Etzion, located in the lush Judean hills of Israel, where he raises sheep and chickens and grows olive and pomegranate trees. It is here in this remote biblical location that he and his community are working to build a Maimonidean Bet Knesset, which will serve as a center for prayer and study for all who wish to hear his message. Mordechai's podcast, Fostat, available on Spotify and Apple, as well as his YouTube channel, Gorilla Judaism, provides a brave and unsafe space to explore the legacy, ideology, and principles of the Torah according to Maimonides in history and contemporary times. In addition to his principal teachings, Mordechai analyzes the weekly Torah portion, holidays, and current events in the context of Maimonidean principles. Each week, Chacham Mordechai bluntly makes the case for a worldwide renaissance for Maimonideanism, answering the most critical questions, why it is authentic, why it is important, and why it is capable of empowering us to do it all. Mordechai's soon-to-be-released book, Foundations, provides a comprehensive overview of his deeply held religious beliefs and is the ultimate guidebook for classical Judaism, both in thought and practice. Without further ado, Mordechai Ishemini. Thank you for joining us. One of the things that I feel like people are not very clear on is why is it so important to understand what pure monotheism is? Why is it so vital for us to be meticulous about the little details? And also, if you can touch on monotheism versus paganism and panentheism, a lot of people don't, uh, a lot of Jews today are panentheists, and they don't even know what that is, and they don't even know what the problem with that is. So if you can kind of give us a background before we delve into the deeper topics. Sure. First of all, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Um, I've known some of you guys for a few years, so um, I appreciate that. Um, so first of all, everybody knows that we, Israel, our contribution to humanity, our main contribution to humanity is the rejection of idols, the acceptance of one God, and this um, almost fanatical insistence on a pure version of monotheism, okay? That's not a big chidush, right? There's nothing new here. It's reflected in the Kriyat Shema that we say several times a day. It's reflected in the mezuzah that we put on our doors, the tefillin that we wear on our arms and on our foreheads. So we're surrounded with symbols and uh, uh, um, memories of, of, of our monotheistic covenant that we have to be monotheists. So, the Torah finds it very important. So just that alone should tell us that this should be a central focal point of our spiritual life. And it should also tell us that there's something deeper and more important about monotheism itself, why this is vital, why this is important, okay? So, and 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 uh, those of you who followed my podcast or followed the um, Cham Faur uh, works would probably be uh, would probably be somewhat aware of this idea that um, rejection of idols, rejection of Abadazara, is the key for human progress. Okay, 
uh, we humans, we have evolved to, to look for simple, supernatural solutions to the natural, very real problems of the world. When we're faced with a difficulty of solving an issue, whether it's a disease, famine, war, floods, and we can solve it naturally because it's very hard, it's, we have this coping mechanism called religion where we come up with supernatural means to solve natural problems. And the amount of energy, the human, uh, mental, emotional, spiritual, and intellectual energy that hu humanity has invested in finding supernatural solutions to natural problems is far out, outperforms the amount of energy we spent finding natural solutions to natural problems. And that way, religion, while it's a coping mechanism that helps humans like survive mentally, it's also could be very, and it has been very damaging in that it um, makes us kind of um, just get lost in all these details, get lost in, in all this magical thinking, pagan thinking, okay? Abraham Avinu, by rejecting all the idols, by calling out in the name of one God, Moshe Rabbeinu, by pushing this uh, pure monotheistic faith of a jealous, angry God, is they're, they're breaking out a paradigm where you reject all of the idols, you reject all of the false beliefs. There's only one God who is outside of nature. The line between creator and creation can never blur. There's no such thing as like, we're all part of God. We're all the peace of God. The idea of a God completely outside nature allows humanity to both have the benefit of religion from a you know, utilitarian perspective, you, you, you have you worship, you, you, have, you have acts of, of commandments that you follow, you have a covenant with God, but also you're constantly rejecting all the false gods in the world. So you're a healthy, balanced individual, and you're also one who can face the challenges of the world unobstructed by superstition and lies. So I don't know if this was a long explanation, but this is, my friends, this is how I would uh, put forth the benefits of pure monotheism, why it's important, not just that it's obviously very important, but this is what it contributes to humanity. And this is what Am Yisrael, this is our, our berit, our providence with God, and this is what we have to contribute to humanity at large. Beautiful, beautiful. So what would be then the difference between polytheism and panentheism? Oh, excellent. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because these are terms, while they're technical and outside of theology and philosophy, not many people think of them, but every human being falls into one of these theisms, right? They're either a deist, an atheist, a monotheist, an agnostic, a polytheist. So it's important to know um, what each term is. So obviously, a monotheist is one who believes in one God, okay? Now, among monotheists, there can be various arguments about what exactly believing in one God means. Right? But there's also a, a, a belief called panentheism, which is very popular today. Uh, many people outside of philosophical circles or theological circles haven't given it much thought, but it's it, it, it kind of is similar to monotheism in some ways, but it's not pure monotheism, and they don't claim to be. Like people who are avowed panentheists don't claim to be pure monotheists. And why is that? Because the panentheist doesn't believe 
and a God that's absolutely one God. It's a pure unity that's outside of nature. They believe in a God that encompasses all of nature and everything that exists is within the God. And, and this God, like this, this, this Godness, and all of us are part of God. And therefore, God is divided into many different parts and expressions. And we're all, all beings, whether human, animal, leaves, uh, demons, jinn, whatever you want to call, they're all expressions of the creator. Okay, That's called panentheism. And many mystical, uh, there's other religions that are panentheists, for example, the Sikh religion, they're panentheists. Right, they were influenced by Muslims who were monotheists, the Hindus that were polytheists. They came up with this panentheistic idea, and they weren't the only ones. Medieval Kabbalists had a problem accepting the traditional explanation of the the pure Achdut Hashem, the pure unity of God. How and how Maimonides, Ibn Ezra, how the Shema. They just had a problem with the, with the idea of like a, a hardcore um, pure monotheism, and they also came up with. This panentheistic idea, which is that God includes all of existence, and therefore um, that's how his unity manifests itself. In right? That's the difference between monotheism and, monotheism and panentheism. Now, before panentheists were popular, polytheism was popular. And some will say that Hindus are polytheists, and probably like Hindu intellectuals, if to the extent that they exist, would say that they're actually panentheists, which is really monotheists. There's all sorts of obfuscation. But in reality, if you want to be a pure monotheist, you need to reject the panentheism as well. Right? And, and uh, in uh, parentheses, I'll add that I had a teacher, uh, one of my rabbis, very famous rabbi, I still respect him very much in yeshiva when I studied in Merkaz Rab. His name was Uri Sharki. And I can say this is not Lashon Harab because he says it publicly. He says, we Jews are not monotheists. We're panentheists. Wow. The reason we won't, he says it straight out, right? Yeah, and he, yeah. I mean, he's, he likes doing inflammatory things. But I sat in his class when he said that. And I was like, okay, the rabbi is again, like being, uh, being edgy. But I didn't think much of it then. But as I matured and grew older and studied more, delved into the depth of Rambam's teachings, I'm like, well, I realized... Uh, Gosh, this guy is like rejecting monotheism. He's honest about it. Others will say we're monotheists, but their doctrine and their teachings is in fact panentheism. And just, and I, if you guys have any questions, feel free to, 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 to interject. But I'm just going to add that veering from pure monotheism to panentheism is in reality a uh, again it's a violation of the brit because the the Ahdut hashem is one of, is a, one of the important one of the principles of faith according to all the, the rishonim and according to obviously the torah the kriyat shema we discussed this like Ahdut hashem is important and this is a violation of that Ahdut hashem and the, the the result in the world of violating Ahdut hashem is that you a few things happen okay and i don't know if this is a, a the great place to expand on it, but I would say that the, the effect of, of violating the, the unity principle is that you begin to ascribe godliness to things outside God. Since God encompasses everything, and everything is actually God, so a great man who's very charismatic, it's easy for him to come to the panentheist and say, I re actually represent God on earth, and the only way to salvation is through me. And who said that? Rabbi Nachman. 
and Jesus, exactly. Right? <laughs> so so how, how could they make such an argument? They can make such an argument if we think if we like if you if we were pure monotheists, we would be we would find it abhorrent the idea that God is like in this person and this is literally God and that's a piece of God. We wouldn't accept it. But when do we accept it? When there's pantheism. Right. So, 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 uh, but fair point, right? Here you see today, since we've, we've violated this uh, seemingly theological principle, like who cares, panentheism, monotheism, as long as you wake up and you wear tefillin, and as you study Torah, you don't speak Lashon Hara, everything is good. But then you find yourself believing that all of your prayers go through the tzaddik. And they'll, they go and pray to the tzaddik, which is a violation of another principle, that we don't pray to intermediaries, right? So this very important core foundation of Judaism, a violation of that will unravel everything and turn us into a nation of pagans, of of violators of the most important oath we have with Allah, with God. So actually, before we go to the next point, I actually want to touch on what you just said, because there are two things you said over there. Um, the first thing is that you... There are actually people can actually turn mitzvot into idolatry. They can actually take the purpose of it, right? And they can, you know, for example, um, the mezuzah, right? They can use it as a amulet, as a protective uh, thing that oh my, it'll protect my house from harm and me from harm. And then that's not the point of it. So, how can you explain how um, those can? happen to people and how people can be actually thinking, hey, I'm doing the right thing. I'm following all the mitzvot by the letter of the law, but I'm actually really violating the law. And also how um, you mentioned that people who pray at graves, from their perspective, they're thinking, I'm not praying to the rabbi. I'm praying in his merit or through him or through him and not, yeah, in, in his honor. What's the argument against that? Okay, so I'll be shown, be shown, well, I don't know. Right. The first question you asked was um, about uh, what was the first question? I forgot. I got yeah, lost in the grades. Turning uh, turning the mitzvot into idolatry. Yes. Turning mitzvot into magic, into idolatry, and this is extremely important in the teachings of Harambam. He starts the Mishneh Torah, which is the book of Halakha, with the first sentence in the Mishneh Torah: Yesod ha-yesodot, ve'amud ha-chokmot, leda sheyesham matzui rishon. Right, so the pillar of all foundations and the foundational wisdom of the entire Torah is to know, to be convinced that there's one God, the creator of everything, and that he's not physical, and the unity principle. And before you even start any halachot, if you have not absorbed the monotheistic idea and you, your life isn't focused in that direction, and I'm just adding this is not, people say this is my manadi and it's only Rambam, but the, the Ramban said different, and this one says, yeah. no, this is not only Rambam, this is the Geonim, this is the Kriyat Shema, this is the Tefillah that we pray, this is the Mezuzah and the Tefillin, everything we do is it expresses this idea, it's not something that he made up, the idea of the oneness of God, but if we don't absorb that, then what happens is, you brought an example of Mezuzah, it's a great example, what is the Mezuzah? It's a, it's a piece of parchment, and on the parchment, you have the Shema, which is the declaration of the unity principle, our ancient declaration from Yaakov Avinu. And then it also has the, 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 the breach, the covenant of loving God and the, the consequences for reviolating the covenant in action and in thought. And, 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 and then, and that's, that's in the Shema, right? And we put it on our door, right? So like we know you leave the house, you come into the house, you know that we're monotheists, this is our thing. 
and and people have have no problem turning that into a magic amulet. In Yilchot Mizuzah, and I forget the chapter right now, Maimonides writes that a person who who puts names of angels in the mezuzah doesn't have chedek le'olam haba, you know, because they're turning this declaration of monotheism into a magic amulet, into a force field that protects your home, which is exactly the kind of pagan thinking that the mezuzah and the Torah actually is trying to drag us out of, they're twisting it around. And they're not doing it because they're bad people. They're doing it because they've never studied the fundamentals. And that's regarding me. And the same thing with all mitzvot, right? Check the mezuzah. Even if they can continue with the mezuzah example, today it's very common to check the mezuzah. Now, are we checking the mezuzah because we are uh, being meticulous with mitzvot? No. People check the mezuzah because their daughter got COVID the second time, and they're thinking maybe the 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 kuf in the in the in the mezuzah is smudged, and that's why they have COVID. And you have people with master's degrees saying that, right? And this is this is This is monotheism. This is wisdom. No, this is this is obviously Hashem, right? And and uh, that, that's the example with mezuzah. The example with tefillin, right? We're tefillin, so before you go into battle, it's going to protect you, okay? Now, it's true that in general, having a, a following of the covenant is protective and it's part of the Torah, but the tefillin the, the itself doesn't have magic power to protect you, you know? So, so that's, uh, that's regarding mitzvot. And regarding um, uh, grave worship, so again, if you go back to the fundamentals, the basics, forget all of the mishnayot you learned, Forget all the Gemara, forget all the Kabbalah. Just look at how the Tanakh is obsessively trying to keep us away from doing any religious service um, when you are Tamimit. And how anybody who goes under a tree or a, or a roof that had a dead body go through, you can't go to the Bet HaMikdash and you can't eat Kodashim and you can't, uh, the Kohen can't do the service and like all these uh, uh, regulations. <clears throat> to isolate and to protect us from the very grave sin of grave worship, right? Of worship of the dead, right? Which is one of the most ancient forms of Avadazara. And it still exists today in South America. You have cults that bring the dead back. They, you know, they dig them up from their graves and dress them up once a year. And they do these processions, right? The Egyptians, how they worship their dead. So the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to keep us away from that. Do not worship the dead. Don't go to the Bet HaMikdash after you went to the Bet HaKvarot. Chachamim say that you shouldn't even wear your tzitzit out outside the Bet HaKvarot. You're not supposed to pray in a Bet HaKvarot either, okay? All of these things were considered forbidden. Why? Because uh, to strengthen the monotheistic principle, right? Now, once that gets violated by med medieval Kabbalists who bring grave worship back into vogue, in Judaism, when we didn't have it in the time of Tanakh, we didn't have it in the Mishnah, we didn't have it in the Talmud, they bring it back into vogue, and lo and behold, today, at every Levaya, including today's Levaya of Rabbi Kanievsky, Zichron, Sadiq uh, right? people are asking the dead to intercede on our behalf. Okay, now, if we study the fundamentals and we were monotheists and we know that you're not supposed to pray to intermediaries, we would not be asking a person who passed away to do anything for us because they're already in Alam Hamed. They can't do that. And it's forbidden to do so. It's part of the prohibition of worshiping the dead. And we wouldn't make such a cult of religion around death, right? So no Kivrei Tzadikim, 
and uh, no woman and uh, no uh, no uh, 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 Miron Balagan that goes on all the nighttime fire worship that they do in Miron that wouldn't happen and not to mention ancestor worship and worship of the dead and it's a it's a it's a prohibition in the Torah and it, again it comes from a faulty foundation in the most basic monotheistic principle. I wanted to I wanted to ask you something though. A lot of people will say that, but but if all this is so vital, why is the Torah uh, seemingly you know off, offers a lot of anthropomorphic uh, expressions of God? If it's yeah. so foundational, if it's so important, if it's what everything is based on, this then why is the Torah seemingly lax in the way it describes God? Chachamim <clears throat> asked the same question in the Talmud in several different places, and their answer is that. The Torah is given over, is taught in the language of humans. Okay, this is how humans re refer to these things. And if you actually look at the anthropomorphic um, uh, descriptions of God in the Tanakh, in the Torah, and I'm here channeling, of course, Harabam, our great master and teacher, he's a, he's a jealous, angry God only when it comes to Avodah Zarah, when it comes to paganism. Right, because again, that's that core mental switch that turns us from uh, th th like overcoming that. Then we can overcome our animal uh, evolutionary uh, like uh, instinct and become humans, become uh, intellects, to become intellectuals. Right. So that's when God gets angry. Like you don't find a jealous, angry God if you didn't wear tchelat and your tzitzit. Tchelet and the tzitzit is part of this model. It fits into the entire um, value system of the Torah. But when does God get angry? When monotheism is violated, right? So that's like an angry God, okay? What's the breach, the covenant? When will the world be a pleasant, good world for humanity? When monotheism is, is, is jealously protected, right? When not, then there's going to be wars. There's going to be famine. There's going, we're going to lose wars. Like all these bad things are going to happen when we violate this covenant. So even the anthropomorphic is only to bring us back to this. Uh -huh. And on a deeper level, that makes sense because when humans view themselves in a fragmented way, okay, when humans look at themselves as you know, we all have different gods. Like when you, you come from a culture of many different gods, so you don't look for the unity in the world. You look, you, you kind of look at the world in a fragmented way, and that expresses itself scientifically. You won't think to explore a connection between the lunar rotation and the um the, the crashing waves of the ocean. You wouldn't think there's a connection. But if you believe in one god, it would make sense for you to look. For connections and phenomena. So scientifically, you can't advance without that. That's why it's Rishit Chokhmah. That's why it's Amuda Chokhmot. And also on a basic humanistic level, humans, in order for us to see ourselves as one family, as children of one ancestor, of Adam HaRishon, in order for us to like appreciate that, um, the idea of the one God um, lends itself to that kind of thinking. Whereas many different tribal gods that lends itself to a, a fractional tribal kind of world it'll never be at peace so the so that's the vision of the prophets of Khamei. within within this framework um that you're expressing 
what does it mean to be close to Hashem? What does it mean kirvat Hashem uldafkabo? Like what? What? Because I feel like a lot of people, um, religion in general is meant to be a vehicle to get close to getting closer to God, getting closer to Hashem. Um, a lot of people see all these um, uh, these this uh, strict monotheism as a way of it's like a, in a way it's like a barrier psychologically at least you know like you know how how does one what does it mean to be close to Hashem to be close to God within this framework that you're yeah because because it's it's impossible to bridge the gap obviously. because that's essentially what we're saying is the, the gap is unbridgeable so then to some extent people are saying so like you know what the, what what are we doing. Like, what's the point? So that's a great question. And that's actually the, the, what you guys are asking. It's a very common question. And for good reason, it's a common question. Because this is, a, this is why the struggle is so hard. And this is why Abu Dazara is so popular. Am Israel, when they uh, built the golden calf, they didn't build the golden calf because they were evil, and they didn't do it because they wanted to violate the covenant. They were looking for a connection. They wanted something tangible. All human sin, okay? All the severe sins are us looking for a human connection, trying to fill a void, fill a need that we have that is not a good or a bad need. It's our nature, okay? And my response to the to, to the question though, so I'm, I'm respecting the gravity of the question. I'm not saying, ah, just be an intellectual and read the guide and that's the, 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 the I'm not going in that way. I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging that this is a severe, a serious uh, challenge, okay? And it's and I would say the same thing, like one will say, like we have all these uh, prohibitions of arayot. It's also challenging to to follow, uh, to, to, to not, not, not have random sex with strangers to some people, right? Or to overcome our, our sexual needs. It's, it's, a, it's to some people, it's challenging to keep kasher. So, but that doesn't mean that I don't respect the, 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 the problem that you're facing. That being said, what I'd like to say, what I'd, what I'd like to add to this conversation is that um, to maybe approach this, from a slightly different perspective, okay? And I'm gonna do my best to do this here in, in a video call, like, you know, on, a, on a podcast. I'm, I don't always, uh, not always as expressive as I'd like to be, but sometimes when a thing is always available and it's always there and it's, it's always uh, easily achievable, it loses its value as well, okay? So if you're a guy, who believes that every single thing in the world is directly programmed by God to happen that way, that way. You go on a bus and you meet your friend that you didn't see in a week, and he's like looking to sell his car, and you want to buy his car. This is only God could have brought together this uh, amazing coincidence, and like just to use this as proof of God, and like you see God in every tree and in every. If you actually see the world that way. Your tefillah, your uh, spiritual experience is going to be much less meaningful than if you lived in a world that's governed by laws of nature. And when you stand before God in tefillah, you're in prayer, you're meditating with the literal of not to use the Kabbalistic terms, you're, you're meditating, you're, you're praying to 
to God that's outside of nature, and you don't know to what extent that prayer will have an effect, and it doesn't make sense to you, that has much more magic to it, has much more spiritual potential than a God that you believe is literally everywhere around you. It's <clears throat> inside of you, that's part of you, all right? It's much more mitzvot and ashim elumada. All right, and, uh, and and it's the same thing with human relationships. If you're if you if you take your wife or your husband for granted, you know, um, and uh, they're there all the time, and, and like you never have any conflict, you never have any arguments, and you never disagree about anything, and there's never any uh, courtship, right? There's never any suffix that they're yours. Things get boring, right? Love deal, right? In religious experience as well, as someone who's practicing Maimonidean for, for over a decade now, I can say that um, having that basis in pure monotheism sets the stage, the foundation for a much deeper and more powerful meditative experience in tefillah than the Kabbalistic, Hasidic version before of constantly trying to prove God everywhere. Not to mention the fact that it's in an unconvincing way, you know. So I, I, I hope that answered your, your, your question. Sure. And actually, um, I wanted to finish off of this segment, um, just bringing up the point of a lot of the things that I feel like people do today is that there's a clear Torah prohibition. Again, you mentioned grave worship, right? The Torah is very against uh, the dead, even Moshe says, choose life and good, not death and evil. Death is a is for the goyim. It's not something that we we are supposed to even think about. But there seems to be like a religious stamp of approval given today and a focus uh, given today on things that the Torah doesn't even like care about. Like, for example, the evil eye. People are obsessed with it. Gilgulim. People are obsessed with it. Going to witches or psychics and all that. People love that stuff. And it's and there's and it's given so much approval by you know the it seems to be a lot of the leaders as well. So how do we you know today in in modern times how do we kind of help people understand that hey you know what just because the majority seem to be saying this is okay we shouldn't be listening to them because a lot of times I'll say but you know the majority rules and I think that's a very misunderstood concept Gedolim, by them. Gedolim. The Gedolim say it. So how do we, um, you know, straighten that out? So uh, it's unfortunate that in the in, in our ancient history, right? Not even that ancient. The Chachamim were competing. They were the Chachamim, the prophets. Let's say they believed that the witches should be killed, executed. These guys are they're. Um, they weren't competing for the same space, okay? They considered them to be, uh, they, they considered them to be Abu Dazara. Today, they're kind of the same, almost the same thing. And, and even Chachamim that are real Tamida Chachamim who I respect and like as, as people who dedicate their lives to the study of Torah, sometimes some of them, all right, will allow their position as to be seen by the masses as basically a glorified wizard or witch, someone who knows the future. So like, you know, Kanievsky just passed away, right? And he was undoubtedly a Tamil Chacham, okay? I'm not gonna, maybe I don't posek like the Lithuanians, or maybe I don't pronounce Kriyat Shema like they do and whatever, but I can respect someone who studies Torah his whole life. But if you listen to the interviews, 99% of the interviews of people who knew him, it was, 
I wanted to get married and he gave me advice and it was magic and he knew exactly what the advice was. Nobody, not one of the interviews on Israeli radio, whether religious or non-religious, that's all I heard all day in the car, in the car today when I drove to Jerusalem and back. Um, none, none of them said, you know, I had a really tough question halakha and he answered a gemara, I didn't understand the sugya in, in, in Ketubot and Rishonim and Achronim he wrote a great shuva on Hilchot Shabbat, like this shuva was amazing, his response to change it. They, they, nobody spoke about it, what they spoke about was his um, his magic powers, okay his, his uh, magnanimous uh, spirituality that would radiate outwards and like affect people around him with his calmness and his nirvana. It was it, it was like nothing to do with Torah, right? And yeah, and all that came from where? From his dedication to Torah. And I know there's a bit of a tangent, but look at the irony. He's a descendant of a movement that fought against Hasidut because they thought that Hasidism is... Um, they were against Hasidism kind of for these reasons, because a Hasidic people, uh, masters of the time, were uh, basically practicing a form of mountain mysticism, similar to the Christian mountain mysticism of the time, of uh, simplicity and holiness and, uh, and, and, and power of the tzaddik. And, and they were against that. It's not the power of the tzaddik because he studies Torah and he knows Allah, there's no, no magic in it, right? And nevertheless, they've semantically assimilated into that the Hasidim completely won. They didn't just survive and grow to be power brokers in politics and in the world, but their core ideology um, overtook Lithuanians as well, right? And and, and, it's, and it's very unfortunate. And uh, there, uh, uh, hopefully there's a small minority of Jews out here, right, like ourselves, and maybe some of the listeners, maybe some of you guys listening it, listening to this will consider, reconsider how you, you approach Torah and realize that all of this is Sheker, and all of this is not our covenant with Borel now. And, and the, the fact that many rabbis go along with this, there's also been many Jews that were part of the golden calf, which was much worse than this, right? So it's not like we don't have precedent of prophets and people and Nassim that do the wrong thing. And how do we know what's our compass? It's not complicated. You don't have to study for 25 years in Kolo to know that there's one God and no more and he's not divisible. These are simple, basic concepts in Judaism and I just uh, read them in the 13 principles of faith in, in Maimonides' like, description. Read the first few chapters of the Mishneh Torah. Read the Shema. Just think about what it means. It's all there. Nothing here is like a brilliance from, from me or but um and, and and also and then and therefore the idea like oh the majority of rabbis said so that is meaningless there's no majority of rabbis unless the chachamim convene a supreme court of bedin hagadol otherwise known as the sanhedrin and if they do so and they vote on things and there's an open debate about issues then you can begin to argue that those decisions those debates have legal status but if that's not happening, you can't randomly choose a group of rabbis and say, this is the majority and I have to follow them. No, they have to convene, they have to do a uh, uh, this due process in the Torah itself, which is Bedina Gadol. If they don't do that, then their majority is meaningless. Therefore, I don't, I don't accept, um, neither should you accept this appeal to authority of majority. And the Torah itself says, do not follow the majority to do evil. So it's... Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. And that still stands. Other Bedina Gadol doesn't stand, so... Right. Yeah, you wanted to say exactly. 
No, I was just, I think that part of the, part of what, um, I think why certain people might find this not so persuasive would be because you, you in a sense also said, um, you know, uh, God's indivisibility and unity, these are things that like, you know, you, you don't have to learn 25 years in Kolel to understand. The, so in, I think that in people's minds, um, how would it be that almost every major rabbi in the past, you know, 500 years can get what would be so fundamental as we're describing it as so fundamental over here? How could it be that everybody has a wrong? And I think, it's also, I think before you even say that, I think it's important for people because a lot of people don't understand timeline because of, you know, there's a pseudepigrapha that backdates the, the Kabbalah that you mentioned before to pre-Maimonidean times. A lot of people think that, you know, these ideas were always around, whereas in reality, the, the, the Kabbalah movement, the, the, the Kabbalah movement that, that came forth in the Middle Ages happened after the era of the Gonim and the Rambam. Yeah. So, so like timeline-wise, Rambam is, is sticking to classical tradition and everything else came after. So maybe you can you know, answer with that. First of all, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly the point. I don't have much to add to that. That uh, this, 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 I think I forgot how to pronounce pseudo-epigraphy. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. So, so pseudo-epigraphy is when you, I'm just gonna explain for the lay people who, who are used to these terms, we use them all the time. That's when you want to, you, you have an idea and you want to promote it and you want to give it authority. So you um, backdate it to a very important person in the past. So you'll say, um, as examples of sort of like, you, you know, you'll have a, a book written and uh, they'll, and they'll say, uh, someone will attribute it to Avraham Avinu or to Moshe Rabbeinu. I didn't actually write it, but they'll attribute it to these great people so to give it more authority. So this is something that has happened a few times in history. And one of those times is, is the Zohar, which was um, attributed to Shimon Bar Yochai in the 1300s by a group of Kabbalists that conveniently discovered the Zohar somewhere, right? And then they, and he or the first the Kabbalists that discovered it kind of attributed it to Shimon Bar Yochai, said, well, I know it's from there. And, and he started spreading this idea. Now, again, it shows up, what, a thousand years? Is it a thousand years after Shimon Bar Yochai passes away? Yeah. Right? And, and now it claims, it's making the claim to have the same status as the Mishnah, and it very conveniently backs up all these medieval mystical ideas that the Kabbalists of the time were pushing, right? It's pseudo-epigraphy. Any um, researcher that would research uh, the Zohar's language and syntax and the bank of, of concepts that it uses would easily tell you that it could not have been written by Shimon Bar Yochai. Right? Shimon Bar Yochai actually spoke Hebrew at that time of Bayit Rishon. They didn't, they, they, the Chachamim didn't, they wrote the Mishnah, they didn't write it in Aramaic. Aramaic later, right? The Aramaic of the Zohar is weird. There's no other Aramaic like it. It's an Aramaic that's kind of what you would come up with if like mixture of Onkelos and and Gemara and uh, the Geonic Aramaic. It's a very create. It's a very creative concoction from a linguistic perspective. There's a lot of syntax of Spanish words and actual Spanish word, like actual Spanish words and Spanish um, like uh, uh, grammatical patterns there. All right, and other things that demonstrate that Shimon Bar Yochai 
Zichron Tzadik Lebracha could not have actually written it. And uh, academics made that argument that unfortunately most religious authorities saw that as a threat to the integrity of Jewish faith. And they didn't see that as just a description of the reality. And, you know, they thought, well, if we're going to see this point, the next they're going to say that the Torah was written by Moshe Rabbeinu and so on. And so, so they kind of uh, rejected it or fought against this idea. But the reality is that uh, research shows that the Torah could not really have been written by Shimon Bar Yochai. And, and, and what makes all of this worse, look, if you have a book that's falsely attributed to someone, because you want to give it authority, that would be bad enough. I would be against that because, you know, honesty is the best policy. But when it comes to the Zohar, it's, again, it's doubly pernicious and evil because it's not just a cool devrait around the parasha thing. They're coming to redefine the entire concept of monotheism. Every single, uh, like Zohar and the parasha is basically saying that the, our idea of one God isn't exactly one God. And then you get the Partsufim and you have the Sfirot. And I don't know if I'm going to get into too much detail into the Zoharic heresy. Um, but uh, that's that, that's something that it hides behind the great name of saintly Shimon Bar Yochai in order to uh, give credence, give authority to their brand new um, anti-monotheistic ideas, right? And and that did a lot of damage because people who who said, wait a minute, the Zohar couldn't have been. There were some rabbis that thought the Zohar couldn't have been. Who openly said that the Zohar could not have been written by Shimon Bar Yochai. They were. Um, treated as heretics, and they were told, "Well, you're, are you denying? Like, holy shit, but I wrote this. Oh, like, that's it, 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 they, they kind of made them look like they're less religious or less um, less uh, uh, committed to Judaism. So what what happened was, you had many chachamim that weren't interested in in uh, betting their whole lives and their careers and their families and everything on the czar controversy. And they just said, listen, when you're 40 and you finished Shas and Poskim, you learn it, you know, in some, uh, like, you, 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 secret society. Put it, put it in the back burner, I understand. Yeah, put it in the back burner. And, and that's actually not a bad policy in considering the circumstances because some of these uh, controversies, you can read up more about this in, online and articles like anti-Mamanathian demons and so on. They got violent and they, they, they involved the authorities. So it was it would have been prudent to say, listen, bizarre, whatever bizarre is, it's only when you're 40 and you finish like Shas and you study Tanakh. So by then hopefully you're a real monotheist and you're and you'll you you won't be affected by it. And that was their policy. That's and how I they dealt that, with it. I believe that happened after um you know the whole Sabbatean uh, debacle. So you know, unfortunately, this kind of led to the, you know, it was kind of like a domino effect that eventually led to Lurianic Kabbalah, which is a completely new idea, um, and in many ways kind of more damaging, but it it had a direct influence on the Sabbatean movement and many false messianic movements that followed. So the, the, the putting it on the back burner became kind of the response to that because it was so widely accepted, but great, great rabbi, rabbis like Rav Yaakov Emdin and, um, you know, uh, um, what's his name, um, Leon de Modena and, uh, and uh, right, and, yeah. and Rav Kapach, I mean, many people have stood up against it. So which leads to the next question that, that we have. Right. It's, it's not even so much a question. We wanted to discuss these letters between, and he, actually it's interesting because you were mentioning how um, uh, you were mentioning like uh, that some already 
you know, would would concede that, you know, not everything was written by Rosh Hashanah. Rav Kook, actually, in his letters um, with Rav Kafich, which I, many people don't even know exist, uh, they corresponded on the idea, on the, on the whole Inyan of Kabbalah together. They had a back and forth, a very interesting and uh, in a way riveting letters between them. Uh, Rav Kook and Rav Kafich, they, they discussed Kabbalah. And uh, there's a lot of interesting observations there. I wanted to know your thoughts on that, and you know, um, it's a it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting interesting thing to bring up. So that's a, actually I'm glad you asked that, okay? Because this gives me the opportunity to give respect where respect is due, okay? Sometimes in the world, uh, we can live in a, in a in a generation where a lot of evil is being done. And sometimes it's like one tzaddik, one righteous person that basically redeems us all. Because if what I'm saying is true, that the Kabbalah is a, is a base, the Kabbalah as we know it, the modern Kabbalah as it's taught today in Zohar and so on, is a violation of our monotheistic principles. And the Am Yisrael allowed it to happen. The fact that nobody ever stood up to it is a, it, it, it's a it's a it's a big um, uh, like it's like a big din on us. It's a bad thing for us that we allow this to happen. So there's it's very good. We're very fortunate that there was one one great Amit Chacham who stood up fearlessly and paid a very heavy price for resisting this heretical insertion into Judaism. His name is. Properly pronounced is Mori Yechiyakafech, Mori Hayashish, which is Rabbi Kapach's grandfather, okay? Rabbi Yosef Kapach's grandfather. And, before, and those are the letters you're referring to. And for those listening, um, you want to probably do some research online about the Dora Da'e movement, which was an anti Kabbalist movement in Yemen, which were a bunch of, uh, a group of Chachamim, uh, but simple Yemenite Chachamim who devoted their entire lives to studying Torah and enriching themselves and following the covenant, who got up and said that everything we've been saying here, monotheism, uh, the Zohars should not be part of the, the canon. It's been found later under suspicious circumstances. It's written in a strange way. This is not our covenant with Borei Olam. And they went as far as to Re, like reprint uh, over that time it wasn't printing they rewrote the Sidur to the ancient rite of like a, a lean muscular prayer Nosach which was like according to Arambam the Geonim at the time of the Talmud they took out all of the Kabbalistic insertions all of this divine erotica like they just got rid of all that and they um, they just re this, I would say revived you know pure version of Tarash Bichtav and Tarash Baalpeh and they are the limut schut for all of Am Yisrael because it's a few hundred people. But uh, we can say that this didn't, this heresy didn't go by without a fight, right? Someone fought back, and they kept the flame of pure monotheism lit. lit. And I, I, you know, recommend anyone watching this do some research into this, um, this information online. And these people, to an extent, they still exist, right? But. When they came out publicly, Yechen Kafir was a chief rabbi in Yemen, and he uh, fought against this Kabbalistic, uh, what he saw the Kabbalistic heresy and what I see as heresy, and he, um, you know, opened, tried to open up his own yeshiva, his own school, he had many students and disciples, 
And uh, that created a commotion in Jerusalem because the Kabbalists of Jerusalem heard that, um, that someone in Yemen, in Sana'a in Yemen, is resisting their doctrine and they could not let it go. And they pronounced a ban on him. Right? He pronounced a counter ban and became, argument became ugly. Um, the, the Yemenite authorities were involved, so the Kabbalists accused the anti-Kabbalists, the Zoridaim, of being uh, of being collaborators with the Turks because they taught languages for Turkish mathematics. So they tried to tell the king of Yemen that you know these guys they're teaching Turkish when they're claiming to be monotheists, and but what they're really doing is they're trying to collaborate with Turkey to you know to subjugate Yemen, which is fighting for its independence from Turkey. And uh, Rav son was arrested and beaten in jail. He ended up dying. This was not a conflict that people didn't pay a price for. It was a very a very heavy price was paid for making this last stand. And uh, um, at, during that conflict, uh, the chief rabbi of Jaffa at the time, I think he was still chief rabbi of Jaffa, which was Abraham Yitzhak Kohen Kuk, even though he was on the side of the Kabbalists, he was a brilliant man who everyone respected in those circles. And he was asked to intervene. And there's a, there's a the letter, and the Ben Sion mentioned the uh, Correspondence between him and Kafech is available in, I think, in Igrotaraya in the recorded letters of Herab Kook. And if it's not there, it's in one of the other uh, books of Herab Kook. I'm sure, like in the comments, when you can post it, you can look it up. And over there, you see a very interesting, in fact, fascinating discussion between Rav Kook trying to defend Kabbalah and Rav Kafech, Yemenite, wearing a turban, representing ancient, pure monotheism, uh, protesting against this intrusion of ancient paganism in postmodern terms in the form of Kabbalah. And that correspondence is something maybe we should do a different podcast for, just studying that, both sides of the argument. I am you know? so down for that. I would so want to like, go through that whole thing because it's amazing because you see also, like you actually see the pro-Kabbalist argument at its finest, okay, at their best, because Rav Kuk was not some lightweight, he wasn't some Kabbalah center. There wasn't some Sharia Chabad in Oregon that's like, uh, that, 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 you know, defending Kabbalah. This is someone who, who was from Aram Yitzhak He knew the argument for and against Kabbalah. And um, seeing his defense of Kabbalah is, is a performance that's worth watching, right? That being said, um, Rav Kuk over there does concede that, of course, parts of the Zohar must have been forged because he was an expert in all forms of Aramaic and Mishnaic language. And this could not have been written by Shimon Bar-Yachai. But nevertheless, he invokes the authority of most of the Gedolim and most of the Tzaddikim and how since so many righteous and holy people accepted it, who are you, Chief Rabbi of Sana, to get up there with your turban and say that uh, this is not monotheistic? That was a, wasn't his entire argument. He makes better arguments as well. But he does mention that in his first um, response or his first letter to Kafech after reading his anti-Kabbalistic work. And, and that's uh, kind of what you guys mentioned earlier. And uh, I just want to make one, if I may, unless you guys have another question about that, I want to make one uh, parable, one mashal observation about how I see this kind of argument. Right? Um, so again, <laughs> if it's an appeal to authority, right? It's an appeal to authority and it's an appeal to uh, uh, tradition because people who are observant and who are God-fearing 
are also tend to be people who respect traditions. And if a heresy has been going on for long enough, then it becomes a tradition too. So someone like ourselves that are loyal to the Torah, we're kind of caught in a bind. And we've all been there. You've been there. I've been there when I started on this path. And you're basically at a point where you realize that th this doctrine is actually a damaging, terrible doctrine. It's bringing Am Yisrael down. And it's also against the covenant. But nevertheless, it's part of our tradition. So I have to, it's like, it's like repenting for something that your parents and your grandparents, maybe your great-grandparents did. It's a very hard thing to do. And the appeal to authority is a very powerful appeal, because it's also an appeal to our own loyalty to God and to tradition, which are intertwined. It makes this struggle so much harder, okay? And, and again, I'm just respecting the, the struggle. I'm not, you know, I, I, before I just bash, you know, the Kabbalists, I have to, like, understand where they're coming from. And even many of you watching would be maybe intrigued by this, but uh, would kind of be um, scared or, or intimidated by the ramifications of what I'm saying. So that being said, I'm going back to my opening statement. How the Tanakh from the beginning finds Avodazara disgusting. Calls it Gilulim. God hates Avodazara. It's the worst thing in the Torah. It's the one thing that everything is based on, right? And and, and, and then you'll find that on the one hand there's that, and the other hand you have Rav Cook here. Again, I'm saying this with the most respect I can muster. I was a student of Merkazarav. I will never disrespect great Chachamim. But he's saying, yes, there are some things in the Zohar that are a little bit questionable. And yes, you are of Kafech, Moriah Yashish, you have a point about some things that may be slightly in violation of monotheistic principles. He's conceding a little bit of ground here, but think about it. We live in a world where like on Pesach, we put silver foil on our counters. We throw out all our dishes, take in new dishes. We're not going to buy water that's not kasher le Pesach. And who, far be it from me to mock people who want to be meticulous about Pesach, right? Of course, meticulousness in mitzvot is, is part of the covenant. But you know what we should definitely be meticulous about? The one God, Avodah that should be the one thing you're machmir on before you do any other Chumrah. I would rather you be Mikkel and you eat Chalav Akum and you don't wear Tzitzit and you miss Tefillin because you have bad thoughts and you can't wear Tefillin. I'd rather all the things in the world, but don't be, don't violate um, the Tamalathis, okay? And... And, 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 and just to, to uh, the mashal that I, I sometimes use, imagine, just imagine, right? I was to tell you, or someone was to Shalom tell you, listen, there's a woman who's an Eshati, she's married. Her and I are really good friends. Now, we're very makpit, we're very meticulous not to do anything that would be forbidden. Like, we're not a very nichud. We only go to restaurants, there's a lot of people there, and we have these long heart-to-heart -heart conversations at home. Loud, right? I uh, we, we 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 have a really close relationship, in fact, and uh, and we have so many benefits to this relationship that it outweighs the slight issues of maybe alter or maybe zenut, maybe so on. We would all find it abhorrent and ridiculous, and we would kick that person out of our social lives. We would not tolerate a friend who who's an adulterer, okay? But and 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 the Torah. 
conflates adultery and abadazara all the time. They're on the same level. Why would you want to, uh, for the benefit of maybe a little bit of inspiration, for the benefit of a religious high, for the benefit of, I don't even know what, funding for, whatever the benefit is, why would you want to be Mikhail? Why would you want to be uh, um, uh, uh, like easy on Avodazara? Why would you want to do that? And therefore that whole line of argument that we should take the good and leave out the bad, that works for, I don't know, Spinoza philosophy, maybe, and not even. Maybe you can say that about, um, I don't know, being like political philosophy, like some good things, some bad things. But you don't say that about things that are uh, that are like violating the basic monotheistic principles. That are essential. Right. Yeah. Because also, listen, the, we have a tradition, obviously, that we follow, we, we have to be strict when it comes to um, Doraita matters, right? Like uh, from the Torah. But when it comes to right. the rabbinic laws, we, we so it, it should apply here, like like you're saying, it's very important that we draw lines in the sand, and people need to respect that there are people who like j- just because we don't agree, we can have a civil conversation. I feel like this, you become you basically get canceled by having like we're risking getting canceled yeah. in this conversation, and we're genuinely curious people who are learning. Uh, you, you know, like you said, you told us off camera that you used to be into Hasidut. We were as well. Yep. So, so like, it's not like we're just hating. We're, we want to know the truth. We want to understand history. We want to understand why things happen the way they happen. So it's important to definitely make those distinctions. I agree. And yeah, I want to just, uh, um, I just want to agree with you that uh, that the, it's not this is personal. None of these Kabbalists or Hasidim ever did anything bad to me personally. I grew up in regular yeshiva. I was exposed to the buffet of Torah ideas and ideologies. They were all exposed to from religious Zionism and various forms of mysticism, Rasulab and Chabad and Kuk and Kalabach and Kahana. We, we're all, we all live in the same world. Okay, So none of this is, is personal. None of this is some kind of grudge I have against these people. I do not. It's just a call from the heart, from the soul of our ancestors way back when, before we started this violation of the Torah. All we call for is an honest appraisal of if we are following our tradition and where we find ourselves at fault in the fundamentals that we return. That's what I, that's what I would like to see. And it's very important that you mention that because we can we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty details that's for another podcast i think when, when we, we should do yeah. talking about the, <laughs> the actual issues with the concepts within kabbalah because there are certain concepts that you know if we explain the obviously the similarity between that and gnosticism and neoplatonism and all yeah. these ideas that are really problematic like you said that it, it exists in the in the world of panentheism um that is we can we can also, right now, the purpose of this conversation is the big picture, because what you're saying is foundations are very important. Let's establish a foundation because you can get the best apologetics from, from Rav Cook. You can get the best apologetics from the Ramchal. They're doing their best to deal with these issues. Yeah. People are spending their lives defending Kabbalah because of the, the problems that it has, instead of really just learning Torah. We're, be, we're being distracted by a lot of these things. The same way if you ask a Christian, if you be, if you're a pagan, or if you believe in the Trinity, you believe in three gods, they'll say no, absolutely not. And they can give you the most, the greatest arguments that it's really one, it's not really three, and 
and they believe that they're following, they're monotheistic. Mm -hmm. So really the issue here that we're trying to establish is that it's not, we're not talking about the, the nitty gritty details yet. We're really just focusing on the alternative to um, this Kabbalistic world is pure monotheism, the classical tradition of our, of our Misora. Yep. yep. One question. What would you do with the Gemara that the did away with Avodah Zarah? So that's a good question. Um, so, so yeah. So the Gemara says, it's interesting. It's, a, it's a several things in that. It says that the prophecy was ended, right? Yep. And Chachamim saw that the Yetzer Hara, the, um, the evil inclination of paganism was so strong that they decided to like kind of weaken it, you know, break it down. And by breaking it down, they also broke down prophecy. There's no more Nabiyan, you know. Gemara does say so. And the reality is, based on everything I've said, the Yetzer Hara is still around every day. So, in reality, the way Mom explains this concept is not that prophecy doesn't exist. The prophecy existed then, it's part of human nature. Humans can tap into their higher consciousness. Right? What doesn't exist anymore is that we don't accept prophecy anymore. Right? We don't accept prophecy as official Nevi'im that we're going to put into practice as like, now you have to listen to the Nevi'im. So, we're taking a break. Now, no more official prophecies. Prophecy now is it's just meditation. A person can reach higher consciousness on his own, but it doesn't have practical application for everyone else. Um, and Avodah Zarah, the idea of like weakening the desire for Avodah Zarah, in the Second Temple period, there was a um, there was a, a a time actually of like a religious crisis in the Roman Empire. So the Romans, they were still worshiping their version of the Greek gods, but they didn't believe in it anymore. And you had, according to historians, uh, so many Romans were converting to Judaism, right? The whole story of Nicolaus and all these matronitos, a lot of the women, Roman noble women, had a lot of time in their hands. They were reading, they were, the religion that they had didn't make sense anymore. There was a, a short spurt of, of what you can call enlightenment, where, where paganism didn't have the same kind of, uh, um, the same kind of um, uh, draw that it had before. And then Minut and Christianity kind of came in, which was obviously Christianity is Abu Dazara because they, you know, they see God as having a body and Trinity. However, it is also a step away from the most primitive version of Abu Dazara. So the Yetzer Haraf Abu Dazara exists, but not on the same level as before. It went up a level. So like now the, the, the fight against Avodazara continues, but it continues like when you play a computer game. So like you play on one level, you have a certain amount of tools when you start, right? And you, I haven't played games for a while, but like I assume they still work that way. And you beat one world, you go to like another world and there you have like new tools and new options and so on. So <coughs> the Avodazara that Abraham Avinu had to deal with is not the same as the one that Moshe Rabbeinu had to deal with. And the one that Chazal had to deal with was not the same one we had to deal with. It's a continuing process. And yes, in the time of Chazal, there historically was a time where the, in the world that Am Yisrael lived in, and that's what gave birth to Christianity. It wasn't just, you know, the Maksham of Hashem Zichro, but it was humans 
They were sick of what they had, so they made up a version of Judaism that they can handle at the time. A perverted version, but it was a some version of that. And that's how I at least understand that Gemara. So how do we get, I want to end on this because we only have a few minutes left and people are probably feeling, hey, you know, so there's no mysticism, there's no, there, there's there's absolutely no esoteric uh, part of Judaism, which we've talked about on the podcast in previous episodes, but in your estimation as a student of Chacham Ka'ur, can you maybe give us an overview of what real true mysticism is? I can try, okay? Because if it's mysticism and it's a secret, then I'm going to reveal secrets on the podcast. I'm going to go and reveal all the secrets in one podcast. We just got to know each other. So what, what, I, what I would say, though, is that we have the Pasuk in Tehillim. Soda Donai right? The secret of God is to those who fear him, right? So there's a... And, and Haramam and Chacham Fa'ur, even Moray Yashish, nobody denies the existence of an esoteric level of understanding of our holy Torah. No one denies that that exists. What we deny are the official expressions of and, and descriptions of what that secret is, right? So I accept that there is a soul, all right? And it's Liri Av. The secret doesn't exist in a text that was hidden away by Shimon Bar Yochai to be discovered a thousand years later, thousand years later in Portugal. It doesn't exist in some other secret text that you can stash away. And like once the secret is revealed, then you know the secret is in the master texts of the Tanakh, the Mishnah, and the Talmud. It's all encoded in our fundamental master documents and our foundational documents is there. And as you study Torah and you study it again and you do parasha every year and you study more Gumara and more Mishnah, like you memorize and so on, you're going to tap in to great secrets of the Torah on your own. And if you're guided by great Chachamim, as some of us have been uh, lucky enough to be guided by, you can they can approve your drashah, they can say, okay, this, yeah, you, you're, you're onto something here. But it's a secret that cannot be communicated verbally. It's a secret that can only be communicated through experience and through training. And that kind of esoterica we accept. And we also accept meditation and tefillah as something that can you can tap into a higher level of consciousness than you otherwise would, right? That exists in, in our tradition. Um, and that's the true, and it's not called Kabbalah, it's called Sod, right? Sod Hashem Le'eriyav, Kabbalah, in the Talmud means something else. And... Um, and that is the true secrets of the Torah. And it's, and it's, it's not that different to other Eastern practices, right? So maybe some of you guys have done like some version of, of karate or kung fu. So you go to like, you go to your first karate class to teach you like first basic movements. They teach you certain sequence of movements and you're learning to move and to punch and to kick. But once you get like a third, fourth degree black belt, they don't teach you new things. You're learning the same things you learned in the first few years, but they're unlocking moves and techniques that were in the original forms that you didn't know, but you really got good at practicing those forms. So they teach you, okay, now when you did this movement, this sequence, this is a very deadly choke 
or you know, uh, neck crank that we didn't want to teach you as a beginner because maybe you're going to get into a bar fight and kill someone. But now that you're mature, you can know what we taught you, what you know. So like Labdil, the Eastern tradition, Torah as well, there is a, uh, a precedent for encoding secrets in the basic text. Right. So these are Torah seekers. These are enlightenment seekers. So the fact that there's quote unquote Kabbalah that is written down and has that tries to describe the Godhead. And obviously the Zohar wasn't around in the time of the Rambam, but something like Shir Koma was floating around and he was like, this, is, this should be burned because yeah. it's, it's very descriptive of God. This is not Kabbalah. So what is, before we go, what is, what is the Rambam's view of like, cause he mentions Rashi Perakim and there's kind of like these chapter headings that are yeah. kind of a reminder. So are those like, Kind of signposts that that's that's the relic that we have left. So you're talking about the Rashi Prakim and the guide, right? Yes. So yes. Because is the guide itself is the guide itself considered mysticism, or is it just we alluding to the guide? We yes, we we students of Kacham Faur consider the guide a um, a, a guide um, to the mystical elements of the Torah. Right. And we didn't make this up. It's an introduction to the guide itself. Absolutely. It's not pure rationalism. Not at all. Yeah. I think rationalism is, a, rationalism is a misnomer. It's actually like, a, you know, a lot of people take offense to, to the term, you know, because obviously yeah. there's nothing rational about it, really. But, um, but yeah, for lack of a better term, we use it. Um, we want to really thank you so much because really? you, made, you made time for us and you're on your farm right now in Israel. And, uh, you know, you, we, we really, <laughs> we know it was hard for you to do this. So we thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure uh, to get back to this. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.